Thank you, Christoph, for the, your very warm welcome to Kirkpatrick. It's, I think I worked out about 35 or 37 years ago since I stood up in there as a, I was a teacher at the time and we were doing a special week with children here. Uh, I came in something of panic because I was, I was coming over Newtonards or the, the Queen's Bridge, got a puncture, little Volkswagen, got the car up on the jack and it fell off the jack and went down on its haunches and there I was, my good suit, trying to pull this thing up and I arrived about two minutes before the service with hands covered with grease and mud and trying to keep them out of sight. So that's my memory of arriving in something of a panic 35 years ago, but uh, very happy memories that followed, spending a lovely week with uh, many of the people you've just spoken about, sharing a week of outreach uh, with the children here. And it's so lovely to see so many children uh, going out to Sunday school today. I know time is short, so I want to go straight into the theme that Christoph has given to me. He has said that you're going to be looking at Mark's gospel and what that has to say about the task of mission. Let me read again one single verse that uh, was not read from Mark 4. Jesus taught them many things in parables, and in his teaching he said this, Listen, a farmer went out to sow his seed. Let's take a moment to pray as we come to God's word. Father, we pray that you would graciously send the Holy Spirit again, so that your word will fulfill that for which you have appointed it. May it give light to the eyes and refresh the soul and rejoice the heart for your name's sake. Amen. I'm sure you'll all agree that these are not easy days for mission in this part of the world. Britain, once the land of the book, I think now less than 3% are officially regular churchgoers. And every single major denomination here in Northern Ireland is reporting serious decline in attendances, especially among the young folk. We're in a society that no longer seems to be uh, underpinned by the Christian values that once made it what it was. Sunday once, uh, the Sabbath day, is now the day for shopping and uh, big sport. Uh, one of the first jobs I had to do when I went to Drogheda about 10 years ago was to take part in the opening service of a new shopping mall, very large mall in the center of Drogheda. Uh, after the little service was over, one of the local councillors came to me and said, don't you realize that you've just opened the new cathedral in town? More people will worship here on Sunday than in all the churches. And I think he has been proved to be right. It's packed on Sundays with shoppers. That's how society has gone. Uh, Christian understanding of marriage is no longer with us. Over half the children born in the Republic this year will be born outside marriage. Uh, we have a very aggressive secular movement at the moment. Uh, you've seen something of the response to David Cameron's comments in recent weeks about Britain being a Christian nation, more and more trying to push the Christian faith from the center to the margins of society and from the public realm to the private world. And then we have a mindset that some people call postmodernism, whereby people won't even argue with you about the Christian message anymore. They say, well, that's, that's true for you, but something else is true for me. And so it's rather difficult to uh, discuss in that environment. And then, of course, here in Ulster, we have the deadly mixture of religion and politics, which helps to distort the Christian message and make it even more difficult to share the good news. So what do we do? Well, I suppose churches have been thinking about this for some time now. Some resort to nostalgia, the good old days. It's lovely to look back, incidentally. I don't, of course, think it's wrong to look back. 
But many want to revisit the 59 revival and say, Lord, we need you to do that again, and that's perhaps where they live a bit in the past. Or let's hype up the message and make it say more than it's supposed to say. Health, wealth, prosperity, maybe that'll get the people in. Or let's tone down the message, take out the bits that are demanding, take out the bits about sin and the cross and judgment and the cost of discipleship. Maybe more people will come that way. Or maybe we should market the gospel as a commodity. People are into new methods today. Let's entertain people, give people what they want. Or let's just give up and become cynical and join the despairs. People have all kinds of response to the the new situation in which the church finds itself in this part of the world. And of course, what one of us doesn't feel our weakness, what one of us doesn't find it difficult to try to share the gospel in a world that either is hostile or just plain uninterested in what we have to say. Sometimes I've thought to myself, if only Jesus were here, instead of my weak sermons, his powerful sermons, instead of my weak character, his perfect character, Instead of our weak attempts to organize mission, his powerful acts of miracle and healing the sick and raising the dead. If only Jesus were here. Well, the lovely thing is that Mark's gospel tells us what did happen when Jesus was here. And it's a very interesting thing to reflect because here Mark is giving us a gospel which is really meant to be a manual for mission for Christians who were greatly discouraged in the first century. Living in Rome, most of the apostles had died The kingdom hadn't come, Christ hadn't returned, and they were very discouraged. And so here Mark gives us two things that I think that we all need. If you like, a spoonful of medicine, one, a large dose of realism about what it means to be engaged in mission, and the other, a spoonful of encouragement. And it seems to me we need both of those things, realism about what to expect and real encouragement to keep going. Let me, if you're not already discouraged, let me try to discourage you for the next uh, few minutes. Because before we even get to the three parables, we see something of the attitude of the world to God's Son. If you have time to read Mark 1 to 3, you'll discover that Jesus was in Galilee. He healed the sick. He raised the dead. He stilled the storm. He fed the hungry. And one would have expected that he would have been given an honorary DD or that he would have been given the freedom of Galilee or some such thing for doing these wonderful things. But even by the time you get to chapter 3, you discover that the mood is changing. In fact, the stories in Mark 1 to 3 are called conflict stories. There's an increasing intensity of opposition to the Son of God. First of all, they're muttering about him to his disciples. Then they mutter to him, and then we're told by the end of chapter 3 that they're plotting to kill him. Psalm 2 had told us this is what we should expect. The rulers of this world set themselves against the Lord and his anointed one. And notice, incidentally, who were conspiring together. It was, again, it was this deadly mixture of political and religious leaders plotting together. This secular world hates God's Son. We should be realistic about that. That has not changed. But notice in the parables the attitude of the world to God's Word. Notice how all three parables that Christoph read for us today are really discouraging. 
here's the sower who goes out to sow. The, he sows the word of the seed quite well. He sows a seed that is a good seed. There's nothing wrong with his method or what he does. But notice in the first parable the tremendous wastage of seed. He spreads all this seed and nearly all of it is wasted. And even that which grows, grows for a little while and then it dies out. All those prayer meetings, all those leaflets, all those sermons preached, all those Sunday school lessons taught, all those times of prayer, uh, all those organization of, of mission, effort, and outreach, all that work and so little result. And even when there seems to be a result, young people or whoever they may be seem to be enthusiastic and then they seem to fade away. Our Lord says that's what you have to expect. And notice the second parable again is very discouraging. This seed that grows silently, you sow it one day and you look a week later and nothing has happened. In our church at the moment, we've been planting some sunflower seeds. We're, we're actually going through these parables with the children in our children's addresses. And we sowed some sunflower seeds a couple of weeks ago. But when you go and look, there's almost nothing happening. And children want to speed things up. And Sometimes if only we could use business methods in the church and we could have forward projections and plan ahead and so on. But no, Jesus says the mission of the gospel is a harvest. And it's slow. And it's silent and it's invisible and you can't see it sometimes. And we get very impatient. That's how it is. And then, of course, the mustard seed is the third parable. This smallest of all seeds, our resources are so unimpressive. Sometimes I go into a hospital and I see the doctor with a stethoscope and the nurse with her syringe or whatever it may be, and all I have to take is a little Gideon Bible and a prayer. And it seems that I don't have very much to offer. And sometimes it's not only that the resources seem small, but sometimes when you want to share the gospel, you can be made to feel small. You don't believe all this rubbish in the Bible, do you? Or why don't you leave people alone to their own views? Why do you try to persuade people? Now, it seems it's okay to persuade people about which political party they should vote for or which insurance company they should do business with. But the one thing apparently we're not allowed to persuade people about is the gospel. People can make you feel very small. I think of a a man who came to me one day and said, I don't like these new people who are coming to the church. They weren't of the right quality. They weren't from the right background. And he wasn't happy about it. He didn't like the way the church was going. And so you can be made to feel very small and your resources seem so very limited. And Jesus said, that's what you have to expect. This work can be very discouraging. Now, I hope by this stage you are thoroughly discouraged and realize that it's probably not worthwhile starting at all. But thank God that all three parables here are also very encouraging. So let's turn to the encouragements. The first one. First of all, we're reminded here that when that good seed finds good soil, you can't stop it. It just grows and grows and multiplies. One of my favorite stories from the world of mission is the story of the church in South Korea, in the whole of Korea. hundred years ago, there were no Christians in that country at all. It was a Buddhist country, hostile to the gospel, missionaries could not get in. One man went on a geographical expedition on a boat, and they were gunned down by the, the Koreans. A fight broke out, and the story is told of this one man walking up a beach with these books, 
And as he was being gone down, the books dropped on the beach. All the others were shot dead. But 25 years later, missionaries went to Korea. They were allowed in, up, and they went up that Pyongyang River where the boat had sailed. And they discovered churches the whole way up the river. And what had happened was that man had brought Bibles. Some of the local people had read the Bibles. And without any Christian teachers, churches had been founded all the way up that river. Revival swept across that nation. And today it's one of the most Christian nations in the world. When the good seed finds good soil, you can't stop it. I think of a young couple who simply walked into our church one Sunday morning. They were actually headed for another church, but something drew them in. In they came. They just kept coming. And today Tom is a full-time evangelist with the Irish mission of our church down in Kilkenny. I think of a little mission in a barn, 1991 club we called it, because it straddled those two years over Christmas and the new year. Pretty discouraging week, cold, miserable, old super heaters, didn't work. One little boy made a response out of maybe a hundred children. But today he's an associate minister in church not too far from here and I hope will be coming back south before too long. I think of one soldier who came to faith and he began to speak to the other soldiers in the local barracks and very soon one, two, three, four different families had come and come to faith, and then their wives, and then their in-laws, and their children, and I was going to say their outlaws, but at any rate, there are about two pews full of that extended army families in the church down there today. A teenage girl who turns up at a party in our house, we had maybe only three children, in the, or teenagers in the church at the time, but she came, she wasn't known to us, but she came because there was food, and we regretted bringing in those teenagers rather like Brian packing them into the 20 people in his living room. We packed them in and we found cigarette butts down the back of the, the seats and jelly uh, on the carpet and orange stains and said never again. But one little girl had come that night and through a very simple ep epilogue, the first time she'd heard the gospel, had come to faith. And she spoke to her boss who worked in the local pizzeria and very soon Mary came to a study and came to faith. And she began to speak to one of her employees Mag, who, after being initially hostile, also came to faith, and then her son and her husband. Because when this good seed finds good soil, it's hard to stop. I think of a chap walked into our church in Drogheda, maybe six, seven years ago now, looking like a hippie, the hair down the back of his, down his, his waist uh, height, or length, rather. But today he's a student in Union College and an assistant minister, again in a church not too far from here. And again, we hope very much we'll come back to minister in the Republic. I think of a man who walked into our church last Good Friday. He simply walked in, the service was over when he came, but he looked around and said, can I come back? And came back and hasn't stopped coming, has come to faith. And he's just started a degree at 55 years old because he said, I've wasted the first 55 years of my life and I would like to spend the rest in serving the Lord. Danny simply walked in through the door. He had lost his way in life and something drew him in. We have discovered in Drogheda at least, and I'm sure it's the same in Ballyhackamore, that there are people out there more anxious to hear the gospel than we are to share it with them. When that good seed finds good soil, it's hard to stop. But let me take the third parable, secondly, uh, and the parable of the mustard seed. 
this tiny little seed, but it becomes a very powerful plant and a powerful tree, our Lord tells us. This gospel is a very powerful message. It transforms the most hopeless situations. I remember 1984 being sent by the Board of Mission to the little church in Drogheda effectively to give the church a decent burial because what they really wanted to do was to join up two dying churches, the Methodists and the Presbyterians, and instead of having to pay two ministers and keep up two buildings, at least they would half the cost and try to give it a decent burial. I remember being called into church house and being said, look, we'll give you two years and then we'll pull you out of this hopeless situation and you'll go somewhere uh, more appropriate or more special. I was given a list of 12 lapsed Presbyterian families to go to visit and see if we could find them. I couldn't find most of them, and the ones that we did find had no interest whatsoever in coming. But God seemed to have had other purposes, because from that other community, Patties and Mix and Shawns and Damians and Declans and Doyles and Hulikens and Horikens and Caseys and Names from that local community that perhaps we hadn't anticipated began to come to the church. And today they're the elders and the committee members and the evangelists and the leaders and in some cases ministers of the gospel. We arrived in Drogheda almost exactly 10 years ago and I remember a senior minister drawing me aside and saying, you cannot see an evangelical witness established in this town. And he gave me three reasons. One was the Battle of the Boyne had been fought two miles down the road, that symbol of I suppose, Protestant domination or victory over the Catholic community. Secondly, the local archbishop had been beheaded and his head is still in a glass case in a church in the center of the town. And it's a symbol again of apparently British oppression of that part of the world. And the third thing was Oliver Cromwell's troops had slaughtered over 3,000 people on the streets. Well, in 10 years, the number of times I've heard anybody mention those three things I think is that number. None at all. Because, of course, the people are not really interested in those things. They're really interested in far more important issues in their lives. And that little group of maybe 15 or 20 people have become over 300 people. And uh, again, like yourselves, we've had to try to adjust to uh, that influx. Probably from 15 different nations, almost none of them from our tradition. This gospel is a very powerful thing, and it transforms the most hopeless cases. I think of a hard-drinking man who would have been out most Friday nights fighting on the streets in Kilkenny, but today he's a godly father who has a Bible study in his home, and indeed has had for the last 25 years. From the day he first heard the gospel, Johnny was completely changed. And he and his wife and three sisters and one of the husbands and some of the next generation, again fill a couple of pews in the seats down there, but every single Tuesday night since then, his home has been open to bring in the neighbors to lead a Bible study group. And here's a message that's so powerful that it can unite opposites. Remember traveling up to Donegal one evening to an installation of a youth worker, a young girl who had worked with us in Kilkenny. One of the family who was with us in the car came from the west of Ireland originally, but had come to the church. And just to provoke some discussion, I remember pointing across the border as I traveled up around by Fermanagh and up into Donegal and pointed across and said to Mary, Mary, my granddad used to be head of the B Specials over there. And she responded saying, well, my granddad was head of the West of Ireland Brigade of the IRA. 
And we began to reflect on that conversation because there we were not only in the same car, not only moderately tolerating each other, but we were actually brothers and sisters in the same church family. Now, what else can do that? Politicians can't. Peace studies experts can't. Psychiatrists can't. But the gospel can. The gospel can take people from completely opposite backgrounds and unite them in one family and love in the Lord Jesus Christ. And here is a message that's so powerful it can stand up in the most hostile situations. I was invited to speak at a Rotary Club one evening in Kilkenny and told by the chairman not to speak on anything religious because uh, it was not a religious group. People came from different backgrounds and therefore uh, would react to any talk of religion. So I had to somehow say something. I asked them what they wanted me to speak about. They said, tell us about your work. So somehow I had to speak about my work without saying anything that seemed remotely religious. But the very first question that came up was from a local surgeon. He said, every day of my life I help people die without pain. Can you help me, or can you tell me how we can help people die with hope? And it was not difficult to speak to him of the only one person that I know of who can stand at a graveside and say with authority, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever lives and believes in me, even though he dies, yet shall he live. And we were, we were very soon speaking about the gospel. I remember when I was a teacher here in Ulster, being invited to the home of an academic who was extremely hostile to the Christian message, and I'd been warned in advance what to expect. And within about two minutes of sitting at the table, he had launched straight in. You don't believe all that rubbish, do you? How does somebody who's intelligent believe in this stuff? I asked him what he believed. He said, well, we're nothing but the chemicals that make us up, the DNA, the chromosomes, the, the elements. I asked him one very simple question. He had a little boy. We were there actually for his birthday party called Patrick. And I said, what happens if young Patrick goes out onto the road outside here on the, on the, the street and a red bus comes down and runs over him? That to you is just a rearrangement of chemicals. Is that how you see it? And naturally, he wasn't very happy about the illustration. But I, I said to him, but Tony, that's not what I'm saying. That's what you're saying. You're saying that's all that's happened. Why do you give to your son, Patrick, a dignity and a worth and a value and a meaning and a significance that he actually doesn't have? And I'll always remember his answer. He said, well, I never, I never thought of that. And then I asked him, do you mean to tell me you're teaching one thing in the classroom, but you live by another set of values? You, do, you can't equate the two things. You're living a lie. He said, I suppose I am. And we then began to talk about why it was that he attributed to a son a dignity and a worth and a value and a meaning and a significance. Because God made him that way. Because in his heart he knew deep down that there was a significance to a son that was more than those things. And very soon again we were speaking about the gospel. And again I remember the words with which we finished the conversation. He said, John, I would dearly love to believe that what you're telling me is true. This message is very powerful. It can stand up in the most hostile situations. It can unite people who are opposites. It can transform the most discouraging situations. But let me come finally to the third little parable, the parable of the seed 
growing silently. Here's a seed. You put it in the soil and you leave it and you go to bed and you go to sleep and all by itself it grows. Because there's somebody else who is Lord of the harvest. That's not us. We simply sow the seed of the word. It is God who gives the increase. God is sovereign in this work of mission. He's sovereign in the people that he calls. I think of someone who was with us in the prayer meeting yesterday morning, but seven or eight years ago, he had been driving in a car through Drogheda and he was listening to a radio program, not a religious program at all, but something came up that made him think about the Bible and he got hold of a Bible and began to read it but didn't understand it. And one Sunday I saw this guy standing on the footpath outside the church and he had apparently had been there for three or four weeks but hadn't the courage to come in. But Barry was persuaded reluctantly to cross the threshold of this strange building and then he came and came to faith and his wife came to faith and very soon he was on the door and today he's doing outreach. But all because, well, just a radio program in the car as he was driving through the town. God is sovereign in the timing. I think of Sam who left East Belfast 45, maybe 50 years ago now. 45 years ago. Met a girl in Galway, got married, lived in Drogheda, didn't set foot in the church. From that day on, he had been in BB and all those things that we talked about earlier, but never again set foot in the church and indeed became very hostile. My colleague Billy, who's an Irish mission evangelist, had visited the home of his daughter on one occasion and he was in the home and he had said, tell that fellow to get lost. That was his attitude. But on one Saturday morning about three years ago, he was driving into town to do his normal shopping on a Saturday morning, past the little church that we were in two years ago. And there on the hill, he found himself parked outside the church, traffic in front, traffic behind, stopped in the traffic, and looking at the sign which said, you're very welcome. And he found himself, he said, transfixed by that sign. And by this stage, the traffic had moved on and the cars were tooting their horns behind him because he was blocking the traffic. But he said, I had this overwhelming desire or sense that I must go in there. Now, he had traveled that way every week for 45 years. But on this particular Saturday, he could not get rid of that feeling, nor could he get rid of it when he went home. Turned into church the next day. And again, let me cut a long story short. Today, it's very hard to stop Sam. He plays the piano and organ in the church. He's in the choir. He's in the house group. What a completely transformed individual. But for 45 years, his sisters here in East Belfast had prayed for their brother. And 45 years on, those prayers were answered, and he came to new birth and new life as those prayers were, came to fruition. God is sovereign in the timing. When I was here 35 years ago at in those days, we worked a lot down the county down coast in CSSM, beach missions. And one of the lovely things about getting older, I can't think of too many good things about getting older, but one of them is that you see things in the long term. And I keep meeting people, indeed, I've met three or four this year alone, who have, I've bumped into them and said, I came to faith on the beach in Malayle as a child. And I remember some of those meetings we had. The talks were not very good. The sand was blowing and the children were fighting and the rain came on often in the middle and it wasn't a great setup in many ways. But the seed was sown and God has given the increase. Today, a couple, at least of those young people, are in full-time Christian service. 
God is sovereign in the timing. And God is sovereign in the methods that he uses. It's not down to us. I think of a man who had been thrown out of university in Maynooth near Dublin. 23 years old, he'd been wasting his, his time there drinking and was very much involved in watching pornographic movies and the like, but ended up on his back in hospital in Kilkenny with a heart attack. And there as a young man, he believed that he was dying. He had a serious heart attack, he believed, and he cried out to this God that he had no time for. God, if you get me out of here, I'll get my life right with you. And John loves to tell the story that his heart attack turned out to be nothing worse than indigestion. But it put him on his back, and then it brought him to his knees, and then it brought him to a Bible study and to faith in Christ and to become an elder in the church and a wonderful preacher of the gospel today. Through a heart attack that wasn't a heart attack. Or I think of Paul who walked into a golf shop. Paul was an atheist. He was captain of the Leinster Pitching Putt Club. And as he stood in the queue in that golf shop, he heard two people chatting. I don't know who they were, he doesn't know who they were, but they were chatting about the Big Bang and creation and how the world came into being. And Paul would say that, I walked into that shop not believing there's a God, and I came out of that shop listening to the conversation, believing there has to be a God. I went in for a golf club without believing in God, and I came out without a golf club believing in God. And something stirred in his heart that he had to find out more about this God, and he began to talked to some of his neighbors. One of them happened to come to our church. He got a Bible, began to read the Bible, turned up at a Bible study group. He had been a deep sea fisherman. And when he read the Bible, he got as far as the story of Noah and was fascinated by this great ship because he had been a fisherman. And something stirred that this was God saying to him, Paul, your life stands in judgment. But he went along to a hotel Bible study that week that he had seen in the paper. And in the providence of God, the theme that evening was, as in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the coming of the Son of Man. Paul was converted to Christ that night, and his wife Rita, and today is a very gifted children's worker. But all through going to buy a golf club that he never ended up actually buying at all. Let me just say one final thing. God is sovereign in the timing. He's sovereign in the method. He's sovereign in the people that he calls, the methods that he uses, but he's also sovereign in the outcome. I still come up on Friday nights to watch Ulster. It's been a disappointing end of the season of the Ulster rugby team. But I'll always remember the time we won the European Cup. The final was in what was then called Lansdowne Road in Dublin today the Aviva. It wasn't much of a game. Ulster won it quite easily, but the really exciting game was the semi-final. Ulster played Stade Francais here at Ravenhill. And I remember watching that game being very tense all the way through because Ulster were just a little point or two ahead and these guys were pounding the Ulster line and it seemed that at any moment the game was going to be lost. But all the way through I felt this total confidence that we were going to win. And the reason was very simple. I was watching that game not live, but in, on video. And I, I knew the score. I knew that we had won. <laughs> and I often use that story because it's a story of the mission of the church. We are involved in a mission whose outcome is certain. We're not involved in a mission which may or may not be successful. 
There is coming a day when the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. When at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and confess that he is Lord. So as you and I go out with this task of mission, whether to teach the Sunday school children or the Bible class or the junior BB or the junior CE or share the gospel with a friend, however stumblingly we try to do that, because most of us are not very good at it and most of us are nervous and we don't find it easy. But as we go out with that good seed of the word and sow that good seed, we leave it in God's hands. He gives the increase and the outcome of our mission is certain. During the time of the Reformation, Martin Luther and his friend Philip Melanchthon uh, were the key figures in, in what was going on. But on one occasion, Philip Melanchthon could not find Luther. There was a, some crisis had come, and he searched everywhere and eventually tracked Martin Luther down to a little pub in Wittenberg. And there he was, as he put it, drinking his pint of Wittenberg beer. And Philip Melanchthon said, Philip, or Martin, what are you doing that... The Reformation's at stake, and here you're sitting, relaxing in this pub with your glass of beer. And Luther responded in words something like these. He said, Philip, as I sit here drinking my pint of Wittenberg beer, God is in heaven, and the gospel runs its course. Now, what he was saying was not promoting beer drinking or laziness, but rather that God is sovereign. We sow the good seed. We give it our best shot, we pray in that seed, we leave it with God, we go to bed and we go to sleep, and we leave the outcome to Him, because the outcome of our mission is not in doubt. So Mark gives us a dose of realism, piles of difficulties, piles of discouragements, but he also gives us great encouragements. When this good seed finds good soil, there's no stopping it. This good seed is so powerful that it can transform the most hopeless situations. And God is sovereign in his work. And because of that, the outcome of our mission is not in doubt. May God give all of you here in Kirkpatrick and those of us who struggle to do the same work done in Drogheda, may we have a, a realism about the work we're doing. But we, may we also know something of these great encouragements that our Lord has told us to expect. Let's not give up on the task. Let's not lose confidence in the Word of God. Let's not be diverted to some other method. This is the only method that God has promised to bless. Let's stick with it, and let's leave the outcome with Him. We'll take a moment to pray, and then, Christoph, back to you. Father, we are very conscious of the discouragements as we seek to reach out for you, but thank you that that is not the end of the story. Thank you for this powerful seed of your word, watered by the Holy Spirit, that brings life to those who are dead, that transforms the most completely hopeless situations, that unites people who were once enemies. Lord, help us to have a confidence in your word. Help us to sow it faithfully in whatever way you give us opportunity. And Father, may you grant the increase and may you have the glory for your namesake. Amen.